0: Welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Each week, we'll take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sethi Kogan. Next Tuesday, September 17th, Israelis will go to the polls for the second time in 2019 to try to elect a new Knesset. This week, we sat down for three conversations with public figures representing the Israeli left, right, and center. We asked each of them the same three questions to try to get a sense of what Israelis are thinking all along the political spectrum. The first voice you'll hear answering will be Oded Revivi, mayor of the West Bank settlement of Efrat. Next! You'll hear from Yossi Klein-Halevi, the thought-provoking author, intellectual, and preeminent voice of the Israeli center. Finally, you'll hear from Ksenia Svetlova, former member of Knesset from the left-of-center Zionist Union Party. We'll go through the three questions with each of them answering in that order, going ideologically from right to left. After we've heard from all three. Stay tuned for an update on what to expect from the election results from Raoul Wutliff, political correspondent at the Times of Israel. Our first question is, what do you think Israeli voters should be thinking about when they step into the ballot box next week? We started off by posing the question to Oded Ravivi. Oded, thank you so much for joining
1: us. My pleasure. Well, I have to admit, uh, these elections are extremely confusing because Even if you compare it to the elections that just happened a few months ago, there's even less of a discussion over different agendas, different platforms, different beliefs or views as to where the country should go. It seems like this specific election has almost totally been focused on either you are for Bibi or against Bibi, the serving prime minister. And I think in that respect, he's managed to dictate that that will be the topic of the elections. Even the allegations of his criminal offenses, which was a very big part of the previous campaign of the elections, has almost completely been ignored for the run-up to these coming uh, elections. So it's really it's not what the people have to think about, but it's really what the people are going to think about. I could say a list of important issues which people should consider about the future of the State of Israel but I would think that most people going to vote are going to vote either for Bibi or against Bibi. And even if you don't vote for the big two parties, you're going to vote for parties which have declared if they're going to sit in a coalition with him or you believe that they're not going to sit in a coalition with him.
0: Next, we ask the question to Yossi Klein-Halevi. Yossi, thank you for joining us.
2: Oh pleasure, Sophie. Well, most of all, I think the question should be, what kind of Israel are we, uh, are we hoping to see emerge from this? Do we want to see an Israel that continues to respect the rule of law, uh, where no one is above the law, where uh, the most basic interests of the country aren't held in thrall to the personal political needs of our prime minister, where corruption... Is squarely faced and not blamed on the police, the media, the courts. Uh, do we, in short, want to see in Israel that is democratic as well as Jewish? And I think that at this point the debate about Israel's Jewishness has been resolved. And there was a debate here in the 1990s during the Oslo years. Uh, there was a a strong part of the Israeli elite, the secular left-wing elite, but raised the the question of whether Israel should continue to see itself as a Jewish state. And that question has been decisively resolved. The, The strong majority of Israeli Jews believe that we should be a continuity of Jewish history, that we have a responsibility to Jews around the world in whatever fashion. I think it's a little ambiguous for Israelis uh, exactly what that responsibility is. But I think most Israelis believe we should have some connection to world Jewry. Uh, And so the question of the Jewishness of Israel has been resolved. Exactly how Israel should be a Jewish state remains very much on the agenda. But now the question, the more basic question that's opened up, and it's, and it's opened up in part because of Netanyahu, not only there were other factors, but the increasingly acute question is, in addition to being a Jewish state, are we going to continue to cherish and protect our identity as a democratic state? That, for me, is what this election is about, and that's what I wish uh, more Israelis, uh, were focusing on when they were deciding who to vote
0: for. Finally, we asked Xenia Svetlova. Xenia, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thank you so much. It's good to be here. Well, um, we are almost 9 million people right now in Israel. And of course, you know, the Israeli uh, society is very diverse. We have many different ethnic minorities, religious minorities. Uh, so it uh, really, uh, you know, you have the whole spectrum of uh, issues Starting from, uh, of course, security, which is, I think, the priority number one for most of Israelis. Israel is a tiny country uh, that borders, see, uh, four Arab countries, and also with the Palestinian autonomy, which is still not a country, but uh, maybe in a way, sometime uh, it will become one. And during most of the years of its history, Israel used to fight with uh, many of its neighbors, uh, bloody wars, many victims, uh, terrorism that basically, you know, started even before the got the independence in uh, 1948. And this is something that's still uh, very uh, much of a daily reality for each and every Israeli. Our army is mandatory. Our kids serve in the army, whether they are boys or girls. And uh, each and every one of us, we do understand that if our borders will not be secured, not only from the immediate neighbors with whom we have now had better relations than before, uh, but from outside threats, uh, such as, for example, uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran that is increasingly uh, terrorizing and uh, threatens uh, the uh, security of the state of Israel, then, uh, you know, it doesn't matter what kind of economy we will have. Because if we cannot provide for the daily security, that the people would be able to enter the bus and not, you know, thinking that whether it will be, you know, perhaps uh, will it explode or or not. uh, Will a person be stopped when he's going to the prayer in the old city of Jerusalem in his back by terrorists? or he can make it all the way, pray and go home safely. So this is, of course, priority number one, I think, for religious, for secular, for men, for women, for young and old. Uh, This is, I think, the only parameter that actually in uh, some uh, way unites uh, the Israelis. Yes, because we want all of us, we want to feel secure. We want to know that our borders are secure and in our houses. Yes, Uh, we are not threatened by rockets from Gaza or in the north uh, from Lebanon, from Hezbollah the economic situation and the social justice is becoming more and more important in recent years. And it appears in the many polls as a consideration for uh, voting for this party or another party. Uh, But there are also things that are important to specific groups, for example, religious liberties, uh, the civil marriage, uh, you know, things like that, that I think that's especially associated with the group of uh, newcomers from former Soviet Union, uh, immigrants from, from the former Soviet Union, then that, that uh, they are almost, uh, I would say, 600,000, maybe even more, uh, you know, 650,000 in Israel. So this group specifically is very uh, attentive to the issues of uh, religious conversion, uh, you know, liberal values, uh, and religious freedom.
0: Next, what should diaspora Jews? Jews here in the States or uh, elsewhere in the world, what should diaspora Jews be thinking about as Israelis go to the polls? Here's Oded Ravivi's answer to the question.
1: I think, being completely honest, the major challenge these days, and it, it crosses throughout all the parties, most of the Israeli politicians, I would even dare say most of the Israelis are unfamiliar with the diaspora, with the challenges that the diaspora is facing, Uh, are also unfamiliar unaware of the importance of organizations, even like AIPAC and its role in American politics and how it helps the state of Israel. A lot, a lot, a lot of Israelis, a considerable amount of Israeli politicians are unaware. And this unawareness, and you can blame whoever you want, but has basically bought into a reality which I think uh, anybody who is aware of the type of relationship or importance can definitely say, that it's caused a problem of a distance which is growing bigger and larger. And if I would be a Jew living in the diaspora these days, I would be trying to think, how can we try and strengthen the bond? How we can renew the tight relationship that might have been in the past? The role game has changed in the past. Israel relied on the diaspora. Today, Israel might be the stronger partner of the two parties. And maybe Israel needs to look out, reach out more to see how we can strengthen the diaspora and not see them as Jews who haven't filled their Zionist dream and come to Israel and ignore them, but understand that they have an important role in keeping alive the Zionist dream, and we need to see how we strengthen that relationship. This
0: is what Yossi Klein-Halevi had to say.
1: Well, first of all, I think that American
2: Jews should have a greater appreciation and understanding for the security dilemmas, the fears that Israelis live with as a matter of course. Uh, We face the kind of security threats that no other country in the world has to contend with. That's a big statement. But I think if you look around our borders, uh, we are virtually surrounded by allies or proxies of Iran and increasingly in Syria by actual Iranian forces. And the Iranian goal is to entirely circle Israel and to make it nearly impossible for us to adequately defend ourselves. And that's what we're we're facing. And there is very little disagreement in the Israeli political system about how we need to respond. In fact, there is no debate. Here we are in the middle of an election, we have a right-wing government that is actively bombing Iranian or surrogate Iranian targets all over the Middle East, in Lebanon, in Syria, in Iraq. And nobody has brought that up as an issue of contention. Not even the left, not even the merits party has attacked the government's policy on striking out against Iran. I wonder if American Jews were polled what they would think about the Israeli policy of hitting Iran. Here, it is not controversial in the least. And among American Jews, I fear it would be controversial. So I'm looking for American Jews to have a greater sense of a shared responsibility for Israeli security. And very often what I hear from progressive American Jews is uh, a critique of Israeli policies. I agree with some of those critiques. Uh, But I don't hear the same uh, concern for Israel's security dilemmas. I don't hear the same appreciation for Israel's security dilemmas that you'll find virtually across the board in the Israeli political system. So in a sense, I would like to see American Jews and Israelis reverse their usual areas of focus. I would like to see Israeli Jews voting in this election more for the future of democracy than on security issues, for a very simple reason. I think that, as I said, there is no real debate over security here. I'd like to see Israelis voting on issues of the future of democracy, and I'd like to see American Jews focusing more on issues of Israeli security. So that's a little counterintuitive for both communities, but I think that we will be a healthier Jewish people if we're able to adopt something of the perspective of the other. If more Israelis were concerned, as American Jews are, of the future of Israeli democracy, and if more uh, American Jews were concerned, as Israelis are, for our ability to defend ourselves in an increasingly dangerous Middle East.
0: And here we heard
3: from Ksenia Svetlova. Well, I think that, uh, first of all, both of us, uh, we in Israel and also the diaspora Jews, uh, we have to concentrate more on our internal relations uh, between each other, because we are brothers and sisters. And uh, the gap that is growing during the last years, it worries me a lot uh, because I think that this is kind of a feeling when the relations in the family are going sour. Also for Israel, I think that the relations with the diaspora Jews are very important security-wise because we are speaking about uh, the very powerful Jewish lobby. Uh, that has acted a very significant role in uh, providing security for the state of Israel. So, first of all, uh, I think that it's important that Jews in diaspora in the United States and in other places will know that there are people in Israel that are concerned uh, for the fate of the relations between Israel and the diaspora Jews. Uh, Many Israelis just do not know well enough, you know, where the things stand. They do not know, they are not familiar with the communities in North America and other places. But some of us are, and uh, we do intend to act on that, to improve the relations, to have further dialogue, to connect our youth in order not to uh, lose touch. And second of all, I think that uh, it's important to understand that although the situation in Israel, is much better than in 1948, when Israel was created, security-wise. We have a stronger army. We also have much better relations with many countries in the world, including in the Middle East. But we are not out of the woods yet. Okay, so there are many threats, and uh, at the end of the day, we can find ourselves still, you know, uh, having uh, to face tremendous challenges that uh, we would definitely need all of the support that we can get also from our brothers and sisters in diaspora.
0: Our next question is ripped from the headlines from Prime Minister Netanyahu's dramatic announcement this week that he would seek to annex the Jordan Valley, that part of the West Bank that abuts the Jordan River, that he would seek to annex that to Israel um, should he form the next government and remain prime minister. What impact is that announcement likely to have on the election? Here's Oded on that question.
1: The first and number one impact that it has had on the election is that it's allowed him to carry on being on the headlines, on the news headlines. Just as you said, you're reading out <laughs> from the headline. That's where it put this announcement. He, every day, every night, what he's thinking is, how can he maintain the agenda of the elections being all about himself? And coming out in a headline like that and creating controversy, creating a discussion— You have at least 24 hours where all the media outlets, all the interpreters, all the politicians are all responding to what he said. That's what he wanted to achieve. He definitely was succeeding in achieving it. There were two slight hiccups. One was that there were missiles fired from Gaza towards Israel. And number two was President Trump put out on Twitter regarding Bolton, which basically drew some of the attention from what Bibi wanted the agenda to be to either to another two very important issues. And whether it will come into fruition or not, there are a lot of questions as to how you actually do the annexation, what status do you give the people involved, how is it going to come about, what's going to be the response of the Palestinians, is it going to promote peace, or is it just going to make life easier for the Israelis? A lot of very difficult questions, which I think are on the table, and not all the questions have good answers. And unlike moving the embassy to Jerusalem or recognizing Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights, when you start discussing Judea and Samaria, the issues are way more complex because of the proximity, because of the amount of people that live here. So it's hard to know and hard to tell whether that declaration before the elections will actually come after within this duration. What impact does it have on the voters? Some of them are definitely buying the promise and say, oh, well, we'll move our vote to Netanyahu, to strengthen him instead of voting for the smaller parties. And those who oppose, of course, say, well, you know, those who don't believe him will say we need to vote for the more ideological parties in order to make sure that what he's saying today, he won't go back on tomorrow.
0: This was Yossi's answer to the question.
2: Well, you know, first of all, we're speaking a week before the election. And the great fear that I have is what... Damage is Netanyahu going to do to the country in the seven days remaining? Uh, How much more damage can he do to us uh, in his increasingly desperate maneuvering? Uh, This is such a transparently desperate and ludicrous move that I don't think many Israelis are going to take this seriously. Uh, On the right, to the right of Netanyahu, what you're hearing people like Ayala Chekdeid and others saying very reasonably is that if Netanyahu wanted to uh, annex the Jordan Valley, he's had 10 years in office. Why the sudden uh, urgency a week before the election? And in uh, my camp, in the center, I don't think anyone is going to be swayed one way or another. I think there's a very good argument to be made for uh, long-term Israeli presence uh, in the Jordan Valley. But that's not an issue to be resolved a few days before an election by a frantic prime minister. It's an issue to be discussed seriously in Israeli discourse. It's an issue to be unpacked in security forums. And uh, ultimately, it's an issue to be voted on in a national referendum if it comes to that. Uh, So uh, I think that Netanyahu is looking increasingly, frankly, ludicrous with his last-minute desperate pronouncements.
0: Finally, here's Ksenia.
3: Well, um, first of all, I have to tell you that uh, many of the Israelis, uh, specifically on the you know, center-left wing, but also those who vote for the right, are uh, quite suspicious of uh, electoral promises, because uh, Netanyahu has been the longest-serving prime minister in the history of Israel, more years than Gurion, which is incredible. Uh, and uh, if he wanted to have the sovereignty over the Jordan Valley, in northern part of the Dead Sea, he of course could easily do that. During the last ten years, he had the majority. Many members in his coalition wanted to promote such legislation, and I uh, do believe that uh, ideologically he does not support this move. He will say now everything that he can because uh, we are talking elections. He has to promise things uh, in order to get more votes. But I think uh, all of us understand that uh, this is really something that that there's really little chance that it will happen. If it will happen, I think it's kind of a nightmarish scenario, because uh, although I do believe that Israel has to stay for security reasons in the Jordan Valley, but it has to to be done through dialogue, through promoting of uh, dialogue, understanding and uh, trust building steps with the other side. Otherwise, we will find ourselves again in a bloody conflict uh, with our closest neighbors, the Palestinians, And eventually, at the end of it, it will be after bloodshed, we will have to again sit at the table negotiations. So I suggest let's spare the bloodshed. Let's resume the negotiations today.
0: Xenia, thank you so much for sharing these important perspectives on the upcoming elections.
3: Thank you so much.
0: Oded, thank you so much for sharing these insights. My pleasure. Good luck. Yossi, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. No one knows for sure what will happen when Israelis vote next week. But one person whose guesses will be rather better than most is Raoul Wutliff, the political correspondent for The Times of Israel. Raoul, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is an unprecedented election in Israel because it's the second general election in the span of just a few months. How did we get here?
4: Well, Seth, we really got here before the last election, Last December, when Avigdor Lieberman, the the then defence minister, resigned from the government um, and uh, effectively forced a situation where we would have to go to elections, um, Somtid Yisrael Beytemel party left the government with less than a majority, and we went to the situation where we had elections in April. But, after the elections in April, he didn't, as many had expected he would do, rejoin the government. He said he stood on his uh, his back legs and made a demand regarding the conscription bill in Israel, which he wanted to conscript ultra orthodox men into the army just as as other men are conscripted into the army. And he said, unless that bill is passed, he won't join the coalition. Everyone thought he was bluffing, as many Israeli politicians do, specifically in the period after elections when the coalition's being formed. But his bluff played out, and he didn't join the coalition. And Netanyahu wasn't able to form a coalition after the April election. He was left with less than the 61-seat majority he needs of the 120-seat parliament. And we were forced to go to new elections. Now, I say we were forced to go to new elections, but in fact, in the normal situation in Israel, if the first person to form a coalition is unable to do so, it will go to the leader of the second largest party or or, or someone else. Um, In this situation, Netanyahu prevented his rival, Benny Gantz, from the Blue and White Party, from having the option to form a coalition and forced new elections. Um, And that's where we are now, just a few days out from the September election, which will be a repeat of April.
0: So how do we anticipate the do-over nature of this race impacting the results that we'll see next week?
4: Well, up until now, we're seeing in polling a very similar situation playing out, whereby Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and Benny Gantz's Blue and White Party each have around 30 to 35 seats, a very similar amount, but neither on their own would be able to form a coalition without Avigdor Lieberman, Israel So, as it seems at the moment, we would be stuck in the same deadlock. Avigdor Lieberman has said he would only join a coalition that's a national unity government of both the Kud, Netanyahu's party, and Blue and White, Benny Gantz's party, which would effectively mean there could be a government without the ultra orthodox parties, without the satellite right-wing parties, without any of the parties to the left of Blue and White. Just those three could potentially form a coalition. But, as it is in Israeli politics, it seems that that's very unlikely. It's not impossible, because the Blue and White Party have said they won't sit in a government with Benjamin Netanyahu due to a number of his statements, his promises, and specifically the three criminal cases open against him. And Benjamin Netanyahu said that he will not be able to sit in a government with Benny Dunst because he, in his words, is a leftist who's trying to bring down Netanyahu and damage the state of Israel. Um, So it seems like we're headed for a similar gridlock situation. But this big difference this time is that we've already had repeat elections and no one in the country wants new elections. And I think it would be very difficult for the politicians to drive the country back to third elections. There would have to be something someone would have to give, either from Blue and White or from Likud, it's unclear what this stage, but I don't think the public will be very forgiving for another set of elections within just five or six months. Mm-hmm.
0: Roy, well, one thing that election watchers kind of bemoan here in the States is that often we have really quite low turnout for elections. Um, Israel does not generally have the same problem. I think, you know, depending on on the election, American turnout rates can sometimes hover right around 50 percent. In Israel, it tends to be closer to 70, 75 percent. But we did see in the April election, we saw uh, fairly historic lows, I think, for Arab turnout. And there were some other interesting turnout quirks in that election. How do we anticipate Anticipate that turnout might be impacted with this do-over election
4: Well, there's no doubt that turnout will be a key factor in determining the election It seems likely that the turnout would be significantly lower than last time which was about 68% The only figure we've got to test that is the votes of the diplomats and the embassy staff who voted last week in the April election Their turnout was around 79% this election. It was 69 it's very likely we'll see an even bigger drop nationally. But how that affects the parties is dependent on who turns out. I was speaking to a senior official of one of the parties who said to me, turnout will definitely decide this election. The question is, which voters are going to turn out? You know, is turnout a good thing? It's a good thing if your own voters come to the polls. But we'll have to see. Netanyahu is known to be a master campaigner and in the final days of every election really pushes the public to vote for him, and he did so in the last election. But at the same time, Blue and White is hoping that the momentum that they can see of people who are looking for change, looking to replace the prime minister, could give them a higher turnout in the final stretch.
0: Now, a casual follower of the election news might have heard snippets of things about West Bank annexation, about hidden cameras in the polling places, looming military threats from Iran and its allies, fatigue in the electorate over Prime Minister Netanyahu, questions in the general public. Not
4: just this, this week, Sefi.
0: Well, but over the past, certainly over the past few months, you know, uh, questions in the general public uh, also about the capabilities of the people who want to replace Netanyahu. You know, all of that, like you said, that could be just this week. I'm sure that there's been even more that's kind of been building up over the past few months. From your expert perspective, what have been the major themes of the election? What are the results of this election going to turn on?
4: Well, there's been, as you mentioned, developments all, all the time. Um, it feels in Israel at the moment like every day is worth at least a week of news. Every few hours, there's developments. And it's I, not I just in Israel, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, one of the key themes, at least one of the key disputes that has guided this election for the last few weeks and still today, has been the proposal to film. And polling stations, to put cameras in polling stations, not where people will vote, not so that people can find out who's voting for who, but at the entrance to the polling stations in an ostensible bid to prevent voter fraud. Now, this whole dispute stems from the day of the last election in April when. The Likud party sent around 1,200 volunteers around the country, particularly to Arab-Israeli polling stations or polling stations in Arab-Israeli neighbourhoods, with cameras, claiming that there is vast voter fraud in those areas and that these cameras are needed to film the fraud and prevent it. Now, that claim is something that has never been proved the Central Elections Committee has investigated voter fraud, but it's found that if anyone, then it could, and the Shas party have benefited from voter fraud, not the Arab-Israeli parties. It's seen more by the critics of this move as an effort to instill some sense of fear within the Arab-Israeli community to prevent them from voting, um, and potentially to stir up a sense of fear, maybe amongst the right, that the Arab-Israelis or the Arab-Israeli parties are coming to steal the election, they're going to have mass voter fraud, and therefore there needs to be an effort to get the vote out. And the final, I guess, uh, potential message of the of, of the of the cameras is, or well, potential use of the cameras, could be to discredit the elections after they take place. Some critics of Benjamin Netanyahu have suggested that he's been pushing this bill, this effort to put cameras in the in in the polling stations so that if he loses, he can then say, look, we have examples or we have potential examples of fraud. How can these election results be accepted? Now, on all levels, the cameras could have a big, big impact. They could, like I said, have an impact on bringing right-wing voters out. They could have an impact on the Arab-Israeli turnout. But the biggest fear could be that they could be used to discredit the elections, and that could be very damaging to Israeli democracy, because ultimately democracy is... The peaceful transition of power, and if you can't have that in a democracy, and obviously in Israel, then you lose the sense of what democracy is. That, I would say, has been the big theme and the big dispute throughout, that continues today um, when we're recording. uh, Just just a couple of hours ago, um, the Likud brought that bill, uh, that proposal, to the Knesset just a few days before the election to allow them to bring cameras into the polling stations, and it failed. It did not pass.
0: Okay, Raul, this is, I think, the moment our listeners have all been waiting for and perhaps the moment that any good political correspondent would dread, um, which is the moment that I ask you to actually make a prediction. I think people are eager to know
4: who's going to win. Well, I have to say, obviously, you know, it's a fool's errand to, to predict any election. I will add that before the last election, the Times of Israel staff had a, had a little pool going where everyone guessed how many seats each party got and everyone put in a few And probably one of the highlights of my journalistic career as a political journalist was winning that pool (laughs) and proving to my colleagues that, at least from their perspective, proving that I knew something about politics. For me, I think it was was more of luck. Um, (laughs) This time around, I would say, you know, it looks like we're headed for a very similar situation. Where the liquid or where Benjamin Netanyahu is unable to form a coalition, yeah, and and I think that's the most likely situation that there'll be a very similar amount of seats between blue and white and liquid. Perhaps the liquid will just overtake blue and white, but I think that they won't be able to form a coalition on their own. And the big question is what happens after that, um, and that's probably even harder to predict than the actual election results itself. I think it will be very hard for Benjamin Netanyahu to continue in the same capacity, having lost two, effectively lost two elections. Um, His whole political persona is about him being this magician, this political mastermind. And if the magician has no more tricks, then he's not entertaining anyone anymore. And I think it will be very hard for him to hold on, both within the Likud party and to the notion that he is the only person able to do this if he doesn't get that
0: majority. Well, here in America, uh, colleagues uh, have to content themselves with playing fantasy football and filling out March Madness brackets. Um, It's it's interesting to learn that that in Israel, it's uh, it's politics that's the real um, that's the real armchair sport for everyone.
4: I have to say, I I also uh, won the March Madness.
0: uh, (laughs) Wow! Well, it sounds like you're really on a roll, and we'll be watching closely to see if your prediction here holds up as well, Raul. Thank you so much for joining us.
4: Thank you
0: very much. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? Borat, good for the Jews? Borat, the infamous fake Kazakhstani journalist who made his debut on HBO's Dolly G show and became world famous in the 2006 movie that bears his name, is decidedly not a fan of the Jews, as even a cursory listen to his favorite song, Throw the Jew Down the Well, would quickly make clear. It's probably not news by now that the actor who plays Borat, on the other hand, the British Sasha Baron Cohen, actually is himself Jewish. Now, Cohen is leaning into that Jewishness with a rare turn in a serious role for the new Netflix miniseries The Spy. In it, Sasha Baron Cohen plays Ellie Cohen, the famous Israeli agent who infiltrated the highest echelons of the Syrian government and defense establishment before being caught and executed in 1965. The Egyptian-born Cohen of Syrian Jewish descent used his Arab background as a strength, and his sacrifice began a process of changing the way that Israeli society thought about Jews from Arab lands and their contributions to Israeli society. Today, municipalities across Israel have streets and whole neighborhoods named for Eli Cohen, and every Israeli knows his story. Now, through Sasha Baron Cohen's work bringing him back to life on Netflix's The Spy, more Americans and others will learn Cohen's story too. That is certainly good for the Jews. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes or Google Play. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC and the Times of Israel. We'd love to hear your views and opinions, or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Our producer is Kukong Doe. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.